Okay, folks, we're in Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9. And basically, uh, the first part of this section is going to be his greeting. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then like Paul did with Timothy, he's going to give some qualifications for elders. Now, this is what, part of the reason why the letters of Titus and First and Second Timothy are called the pastoral letters is because both men were sent to these churches to basically establish a leadership there. So Titus was sent to the church in Crete, okay? Crete is that little island, you know, in the Mediterranean. It's not little. I guess it's a big island. And he was sent there to uh, establish the church and appoint elders, appoint leaders. And so Paul's going to talk to him about that. You're going to find that some of the things that he says to uh, Titus are very similar to the things that he told Timothy. So it's good for us to kind of go back over them. So let's talk, first of all, about his greeting, okay? So look with me. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4, first of all. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so let's talk, first of all, about the author. So, first of all, Paul identifies himself as, the writer identifies himself as Paul, the bondservant of God. So I want you to notice the first thing that he points out here about himself is that he's a bondservant. So anybody got an idea what a bondservant is? Anybody have an idea what a bond servant is? Serving bound to uh, fulfill his master's wishes. Okay, all right, that's 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 good, Bruce. A servant who's bound to fulfill his master's wishes. Okay, anybody else? That's close. Huh? What? Okay, so Paul knew he was bought with a price. Okay, so you're you're saying his service had to do with his salvation. Okay, that's good, Mary. That's close. Anybody else? Okay. Because, like, what's a bond servant? Okay, a bond servant is somebody who, all right, we had bond servants in our country. I don't know if you knew that. Okay. How many of you knew that in the early years of the Americas, the American colonies, there were bond servants? Bond servants were basically English common people who owed a debt back in England, and the way for them to pay off their debt was to go to the colonies and work. So it was a form of slavery, but it was kind of a debtor slavery, okay, where you are paying off your debt. Did you understand what I'm saying? And in some ways, (laughs) our system is almost, have you noticed the news? Our system is kind of developing that again, a debtor's type of 
prison that is happening now, okay? Uh, so what happens is that in the biblical sense, it is somebody who has been purchased, redeemed, which is what a believer is, right? We're purchased, redeemed from the slave markets of sin. And then that person then, because of their freedom, decides to serve the one who redeemed them. You become a servant or a slave to the one who redeemed them. So you become a servant or a slave to who? Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why he uses the term bondservant. So basically, he's saying, I'm Paul, a slave to Jesus. Did you understand what I'm saying? I'm Paul, a slave to Jesus. Now, that's a little bit hard for our American minds to wrap around. Because we're not a slave to anybody, are we? Well, you maybe owe your soul to the company store, right? Is that what the song was? Okay. I mean, you're, you're a debtor to somebody. Okay. But as far as being a slave to Jesus, that, we don't even talk about that in our churches. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's because that's almost un-American. But the reality is, we have a concept of salvation that I think is a little bit deficient, and that is we think that once we're saved, it's okay. We can do whatever we want to do. No, that's not true. Jesus bought you with a price. He becomes your what? Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have a hard time, again, wrapping our brain around that because we're Americans. But he becomes our master, and we are his what? Servants. Did you understand what I'm saying? You and I are called to serve God with our lives. We say, well, I'm not called to be a minister. I'm not talking about being a minister. The problem is, is we like to reduce things down to people who are called to be ministers, and then there's the rest of us. Well, the rest of us, we're still servants too, and you're called to serve God where? You are at, whether it's at the job you're at, or in the neighborhood you're at, or at the school you're at. Did you understand what I'm saying? You're called to serve God. And I think it's significant here that the first thing that this guy who wrote half of your New Testament identifies himself as is what? A slave to Jesus. Notice the second thing he then says is apostle. That's really contrary to a lot of things we see today in North American Christianity. Because if you talk to anybody who has any kind of position in a church, the first thing they're going to tell you is their what? Position. Who they are. Did you understand what I'm saying? Paul doesn't do that. He starts off with, I'm a bond servant. I'm a slave and an apostle. So he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith and truth. So he's an apostle of the faith. So he's going to expand now in verse the second part of verse 1 all the way to verse 3. He's going to expand what does he mean by faith and truth. He's going to expand the nature of that faith and truth. So let's look at a couple things because there's some things that you and I need to grasp here. Okay. So first of all, he states that Faith in the knowledge of truth leads to godliness in, an, in a believer's life. Faith, all right, 
And truth, the knowledge of truth, leads to godliness. All right, so first of all, what's faith? What's faith? Okay, trust in God. Is it anything more than that? Okay, a belief, but it's it's more than a belief, but that's good, Cindy. Okay, remember, remember I told, I've used this illustration before you, okay, because I guess as I'm getting older, I have to go to routine doctor's appointments. You, you know what I'm talking about, folks? Like, I've got to go see my doctor every six months, you know, and so when I go into the doctor's office, well, first of all, you go into the waiting room and they got something on the TV, like, can you put a movie on or something? Who cares about that stuff, you know? And then you go into the room, and on the on the walls of the room are usually certificates, right? Or diplomas. And you can see that this doctor that you're going to talk to has what? Credentials. Did you understand what I'm saying? That he's a doctor. And I can believe he's a doctor because I look up there and see what that document says. But so he comes in and he'll tell me, hey, George, you really got to work on the weight. Okay? That's just what he says to me. Okay? And uh, <clears throat> I can listen to him and believe that he's a doctor and what he's telling me is true, right? But I may not act on that belief. The issue is, do I have faith that he's a doctor? And I act on my faith, right? See, that's the difference. See, a lot of people live the Christian life just with a belief, but they don't have act on that faith. Trust, like Bruce was saying, but more than trust, a committed trust. A belief in him, whether even when things are upside down. So that faith, plus a knowledge of the truth, leads to godliness. Now, what in the world is godliness? What's godliness, guys? Okay, well, yes, people would see it in your life. That's right. But what is it? Oh, a Christ-like life, your relationship with God. Again, that's all reflected. But it's living right, right? It's living the way God wants you to live your life. Now, I want you to notice something. That word godliness there in verse 1, we're going to talk about that several times in this letter. Paul's going to talk about godliness again in chapter 2 because he's going to tell us who teaches us godliness. Because first of all, do you, can you figure out what godliness is on your own? Why would that be difficult? Okay, we have nothing to base it on, but there's another problem. You have a body that's been trained in what? Sin, yeah. Your flesh is trained in sin. And so have you noticed that the things that are wrong you really want to do? You do, do you know what I'm saying? Because they're appealing to your what? You know, to your body. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? So simply just having a knowledge, but you've got to have a faith as well. Do you understand? So he states that faith and knowledge lead to godliness in a believer's life. Now here's the next thing he says about faith. Faith and knowledge rest on a hope of eternal life that God 
had promised. Now, the hope of eternal life isn't here in this world, okay? So let go of this world. The hope of eternal life is coming far beyond anything we can imagine or think of. Do you know what I'm saying? It's coming. And, and, and that's where your faith and hope need to rest because even in spite of, because let, let's be honest, how many of you had a wonderful week this last week? I mean, oh, I had an okay week. Yeah, okay. How about the last month? Did anything wrong happen? Okay, even if it didn't happen, trust me, it's coming. Wrong, but, but stuff happens, right? You're constantly being reminded that this world isn't great, that this world's not perfect. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you suffer. You don't even have to do anything and you suffer just because of the nature of this world. And so your hope can't be here, right? Your hope has to be with what God promised you later. But you don't, you've never seen that. You've never seen what he's talking about. You've not, all you know is what he's told you about what's coming. That's where what comes in. Faith. You gotta have faith. A trust in him. Which I think is interesting because the next thing he says is, the God who cannot lie made the promise of eternal life before time began. See, my faith isn't in the hope. My faith is in God, because he's the one who cannot lie. You're like, okay, so sometimes I have to go to Altoona or State College, and and um, so from Kerwinsville here, I'll go by way of the Hogback Bridge and, and cut across over towards West Decatur, and on my road trip there, there's a guy who has a sign out, and it bothers me every time I go by it, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you what the sign is, and you're going to say, well, there's nothing wrong with that sign. Yes, there is. The guy's sign says, I believe in the power of prayer. Do you guys see anything wrong with that sign? No, George, I say that. Well, it's not not even that. It's because it depends on the prayer. The pre- you can pray to Allah all day long, and that won't do anything for you. Okay, all right. Well, that's good, Bruce. That, that's going off in a direction I didn't think of, but you're right. You can pray to Allah or or some other, yeah, or Ra, the... You have a hope and a faith in 
and Jesus. All right? So, let's go on. You said, I don't know about that. You've got to digest it. All right, well, digest it. Think about it. Where is your hope and faith really? Is it in just praying? Folks, I have been, Prosper and I have been in Myanmar in a temple, watching people pray and offer incense and pouring water on an idol, sincerely praying. God doesn't answer those prayers. And so it's not praying. It's who? The God who answers prayer, which is God. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, now, here's what he says about that this promise and that this faith and truth is manifested how? In preaching. God in due time manifested the promise of salvation in his word through preaching. Because somebody's telling you. Somebody's proclaiming it. Somebody's preaching it. Okay? Through preaching. So then the preaching of the word was committed to Paul. So this is what he says. Paul said, This was committed to me by the commandment of God. Now, when did that commandment take place? Remember? On the road to Damascus? When he had his experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's when he was called to, to be a witness. So then verse 4, he's going to say the recipient. Okay? Paul addresses his letter to Titus, his true son, in the faith. So he's addressing this letter, because it is a letter, to his true son, Titus. Now, Titus is not a Jew. Titus is a Gentile. He is a Gentile believer who came to faith in Paul's ministry and so now I want you to notice now the blessing, which is typical of most of these letters. He bestows a traditional blessing of grace, mercy, peace from the Father and Jesus. Now we get to verse 5 through 9, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time because we're going to talk about some instructions for elders. Okay? So let's look with me at verse 5. For this reason, he's referring back to the preaching. Okay, the proclaiming of the message of the gospel. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless and a husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as has been, as he, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Okay, so let's talk about this. We're going to talk about, again, some qualifications for elders. Now, he uses a word here, elders. He also uses another word here, bishop. Now, what's a bishop? Now, you're probably thinking in terms of some denominations where they have a bishop. Now, a bishop, actually, the word means overseer, okay? 
Again, it's a pastoral office. All right, so let's talk about his purpose. Titus was sent to Crete for a purpose. Paul left Titus in Crete to set things in order that were lacking in the church. So basically, there were some issues that were going on in the church in Crete that needed to be addressed, and so that's why he left Titus. So let's stop for a moment. Is there such a thing as a perfect church? No. No, right? There's no such thing as a perfect church. Is there a church that has it all together? No. Every church has, in some way, some way that they're lacking. This church obviously had some things that were lacking, so Paul decided to leave Titus to set those things right. Titus was also tasked with appointing elders in the Christian church. Now notice it says city, so obviously he was appointed to set elders in the churches throughout Crete, through the island of Crete. Now, let's talk about the qualification of those elders. So first of all, Paul states that an elder must be blameless and not have a standing accusation against him. He must be blameless. All right, so what do you think that means, blameless? All right, good reputation. Anybody else? Does it mean like Jesus? No, actually the word that's used here is not the word that's used for Jesus. The Gospels talk about Jesus being blameless. Even even the New Testament talks about Jesus being blameless. We're not talking the same word here, okay? Because the word here is not referring to the type of blamelessness that occurs with Jesus because Jesus couldn't sin. Do human beings sin? Do elders sin? Okay. So it's not that they don't sin, the issue is, is that they're blameless. What does that mean? Well, that they don't have, as Bruce was saying, they have a good reputation, or they don't have a standing accusation against them. Okay? So you want to appoint men who are of good reputation that nobody can point at and say, hey, I've done business with him, and he's pretty shady, you know what I'm saying? You know, you don't want to do that. Or, yeah, he may act that way in church, but look at how he acts on the job, you know, different things. Look at how he acts when he's away from home, all right? Now, he also talks about his marriage. Paul states that an elder must be married and not divorced. Here he says a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. Two significant things there. One doesn't is not relevant to us, and that is polygamy. In their culture, sometimes men had, I don't know why, maybe they lost their minds, they had more than one wife, okay? Okay? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, one's enough, okay? But for some reason in their culture, they felt they had to have two. All right, but here it's saying that an elder can't be a man who has two wives, but he has to be one wife, so it has to be one wife. Now, historically, the church, just being honest with you, historically, the church, up until the mid-20th century, has said that that man can't be divorced. 
that an elder can't be divorced up until the mid-20th century. Why did that change? It's called North America. Did you understand what I'm saying? And so Paul states that an elder must be married and and not divorced. Here's the, here's the next qualification. He states that an elder must have faithful children who are not accused of being wild. Okay? Faithful children who are not accused of being wild. Okay? Because that reflects on who he is. What kind of home did he have? Okay? All right? Now he's talking about being blameless in ministry. Paul states that an elder must be blameless as a steward of God. Now, okay, now this is interesting because Timothy didn't, Paul didn't tell this to Timothy, but he's telling it here to Titus. And I think this, so this is an added dimension from what we've looked at before, because it's one thing to be blameless in a community, okay, above reproach in a community, but he's also saying that he needs to be above reproach in how he does what? Yeah, ministry, yeah. How he functions in serving others, he needs to be above reproach. Okay, because sometimes, you know, folks can be guided by wrong values, even if they are in ministry. Did you understand what I'm saying? So here, as an elder, he must be blameless as a steward of God. All right? Here's one. He states that an elder must... Not be self-willed or arrogant in his character. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? Because through the years, I've been a believer now since 1985, I've met some pretty arrogant guys, and they are in what? Ministry. But yet, he's telling us here that we need to be what? Not arrogant. He's calling us to, to be honest with you, humility, humbleness. In fact, who's the perfect example of that? The Apostle Paul. How? How did he identify himself? Paul, a what? Slave. Bondservant. Okay? So here's the qualification. Paul states an elder must not be self-willed and arrogant in his character. Paul states that an elder must not be quick-tempered in his interactions with others. What does that mean? He can't have a short fuse. You know what that means, right? He can't have a short fuse with people. Okay? Can't have a short fuse. Can't be quick-tempered. Paul states that an elder must not be addicted to alcohol. And I would add to it, here in their day, the drug of their day was wine. Okay? The drug of their day was wine. But in our day, it's more than just wine, right? Now, first of all, the Bible does not forbid drinking. It forbids what? Drunkenness or addiction. Okay? It forbids drunkenness or addiction. And here, it's talking about that an elder must not be addicted. Because what controls you when you're addicted? Yeah, whatever it is that you're addicted to, right? 
Okay, so you need to be self-controlled, not addicted here. It says not addicted to alcohol, all right? Concerning money, this is an interesting one, especially in light of what we see on TV. Uh, Paul states that an elder must not be greedy or motivated to have money. I just read this week about a mega church pastor down in Dallas, Texas, who has been indicted by the feds, are you ready for this, for deceiving his people out of a million dollars into some sort of financial planning scheme where he was receiving the benefit of that. You know? Wow! What do you think his motivation was? The gospel! Yeah, (laughs) The gospel according to who? The bank. Do you, 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 you know what I'm saying? The good news of the bank. You can't be motivated by money. This is dangerous. Folks, I have watched men who are good men who through success get corrupted and then all of a sudden their motivation now is what? Not Jesus, but what? Money. It's a dangerous thing. Do you understand? That's why Proverbs is so amazing. When Proverbs says, Lord, give me what I need, no more, no less. Give me what I need, no less, so that I don't steal and shame you, no more, lest I what? Forget you. There, there, it is interesting. Did you understand what I'm saying? So an elder can't be consumed with greed or be motivated by money. Here's the other one. He has to be hospitable. An elder states that an elder must be hospitable to others. Now, in their context of hospitality, that just doesn't mean friendliness. It doesn't mean, hi, how you doing, Bruce? Nice to meet you. That doesn't mean that I'm hospitable. What it means is, is I'm willing to take Bruce into my house and feed him clothe him if necessary, take care of him. That's what hospitality was back then. You know, if you want to know a biblical example of hospitality, remember the two angels who came into Sodom and they were in the market square? And what? Lot came up to them and said, come to my home. It's offering protection and the well-being. That's what hospitality is here. It's being concerned about others and being willing to take care of them. All right, let's go on. He talks again about the love of what is good. Paul states that an elder must be a lover of what is good. This is reflective of his character. All right, a lover of what is good. Again, we're going to talk about self-control. Paul states that an elder must be self-control and sober in his thinking. If you don't have control of your mind, what kind of problems are you going to have? If you don't have control of your mind, if you don't have control, because out of your mind comes your desires, comes your lusts. Do you you understand what I'm saying? If you don't have control of your mind, and you just let your mind go wherever, that's ultimately going to be reflected in your what? Actions. Ultimately. So there he's talking about being self-controlled and sober in your thinking. Okay? In fact, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible talks about this. Paul talks about this later, taking every thought captive. Because not every thought that you have comes from you. Do you realize that? 
Well, I thought it was just me. No, no, not every thought comes from you. You have an enemy who gives, who plants thoughts in your mind. How? He whispers them to you. Did you understand? So let's go on. He's going to talk about being just, holy, and disciplined. Paul states that an elder must be just, holy, and disciplined in his actions. And then we get to verse 9. He's talking about holding fast. Paul states that an elder must hold fast to the message of the truth as it was taught. So he's going to be faithful to the teaching that he received. And then he says this, that he has to be a teacher. Paul states that that this allows the elder to teach others and rebuke those who oppose it. Isn't that true? I mean, think about it. We have elders in our church. We have myself. We have three other men who are elders. I think the expectation that you guys should have of us is, are you constantly reading and reinforcing the truth so that you can teach us? Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you constantly reinforcing in your life the teaching? Because, look, what if I told you that I don't do anything all week except meet with people? I never pick up the Bible. I never read it. I never study theology. I never listen to messages. But I come up here and I every week, and I'm, quote, teaching you, but I have nothing to base that teaching on. Where would, what would you think of that? Would you think that's crazy? You would say, I'm out of here. Did you know what I'm saying? We were just joking about a friend of mine. Okay, it's kind of like this. We were just joking about a friend of mine who was a radio personality in Canada, okay? And when he got hired the first time from a radio station, he was hired to read the news reports on the hour. And so Rusty got, said, okay, he got a job, and he was excited. But the problem was Rusty couldn't read. He's dyslexic. So he just winged it, got on the news and winged it. And so at the end of the day, the station manager came to him and said, you can't read, can you? And Rusty said, no. He said, that's okay. Boy, you told some great stories. We've got a different job for you. (laughs) Did you know what I'm saying? Now, it's kind of like if you don't have someone who's being taught to teach you, that's kind of like that, just winging it. Did you understand what I'm saying? And that's not good. An elder just doesn't wing it, all right? He just doesn't wing it. He has to be ready to what? Instruct others, exhort them, but also what? Answer falsehood. Because let's be honest, is falsehood out there? Yeah, you got to be able to answer it, right? Okay. All right. Next week, we're going to continue on, and he's going to talk about false Christians. I think that's interesting. He talks about teachers being able to answer those who oppose it. Next week, he's going to talk about false Christians.